This is What's Ahead, and I'm Steve Forbes. You're about to hear from Steve Off, a very successful money manager, tens of billions of dollars, but he also is an evangelist, a Catholic evangelist. Now you ask, what would that have to do with me? Well, we all have a spiritual side, whether we know it or not. A little different from what we usually do on this podcast, but well worth listening to. I think you'll find it extremely stimulating. But first, when I look at this week, here's what's ahead. Well, we'll hear more about the Democratic debate on September 12th. That's uh, more than a week away, but it'll be dominating the headlines after Labor Day. The White House battle with the Fed, that'll continue as well. But next week, we're also going to get the ISM Manufacturing Report. That comes from the Institute of Supply Managers. Manufacturing has been under stress in the U.S. economy. This report will give us an indication. Is that downturn turned around? Or do we have an economy that's going to get in trouble because if manufacturing gets in trouble, ultimately the rest of the economy gets in trouble? A little later, we get a similar report, this time in non-manufacturing service sector. Again, is it going up or down? People will be looking. What kind of quarter is ahead? What kind of fourth quarter are we going to have? We'll also see a report on U.S. international trade and goods and services. How much are we importing? How much are we exporting? Now, a big hoo-ha is always made of the trade deficit. Don't pay much attention to that, but look instead for indications of how much the American people imported, because if they imported a lot, it means they are spending. That's a good thing. Exporting will be a sign of how well the rest of the global economy is doing. So ignore the deficit talk, but look at those two numbers, exports, imports, for a barometer of the health of our economy and the global economy. And Hong Kong and trade. The Chinese last week made nice noises about trade. Maybe that has something to do with the fact they're preparing a crackdown on Hong Kong, hoping to keep the trade talks going even if they do the ultimate in Hong Kong. Watch out for that. And finally, we got an Inspector General's report last week about James Comey, former head of the FBI. You'll hear more stories about Attorney General Barr. When is his report going to be coming out? There was speculation that would soon follow the IG report. So whether it's this coming week or the week after, this will spark a lot of headlines and perhaps a political firestorm. Well, Steve, thank you for coming with us today. We're here to discuss your new book, The Missionary of Wall Street, From Managing Money to Saving Souls on the Streets of New York. Steve, thank you for coming in today. Thank you for having me, Steve. First, a little bit of background about yourself. Tell us uh, what you do with Federated as a money manager. You graduated from the best school in the world, Princeton, although I'm not <laughs> sure about that today. But So give us first a little bit of background with Federated. I've been with Federated, Steve, 20 years almost as their chief investment officer over equities and their mixed balance products. So, And how many billions does that add up to? We're Well, we're well north of 70 as a published number, so we're probably a little higher than that now. But yeah, it's been a great ride. It's funny how that success has come alongside of my missionary efforts. We've had probably 10 bagged our assets since I became CIO in equities. One one of the points uh, you make, which we'll get to in uh, your missionary work, is that you feel it's made you a better manager, that it's not 
one on one side, one thing on the other side. It's uh, part of the same. Yeah, it's become very integrated. I, I think as a leader, I'm maybe a little more restrained, a little more respectful of others, even loving. And I think people get that. Our turnover rate in, for the investment world on Wall Street is extremely low. That matters for investment performance because people have better chemistry. And I don't know, it could even be it's made me a little more of an optimist. When things got really dark back in 08, 09, we were very bullish. That really helped us a lot in the ensuing period. So I, I think it's helped on a lot of levels. So here you are, money manager, Federated. You work in New York? Yeah. Even though Federated is headquartered in Pittsburgh. Well, I got about 40% of my portfolio managers are in Pittsburgh, but we have a huge group here in New York. Most of our aggressive strategies are here, growth, international, and our kind of income-oriented strategies are in Pittsburgh. I've got a big quant team up in Boston, so I get around. You describe how in, uh, I think it was 2002 in your book, you're uh, chugging along, working full-time. You call yourself a part-time Catholic. You're raised Catholic, part-time Catholic. Although the managers, uh, the founding family of uh, Federated, uh, the Donahues, are, are Catholic. They are, yeah. Your wife is devout, but in 2002, you it was just something on the side. Tell us what happened to your heart in 2002, and why do you think that led you to, as you say, become less Steve-centric and more open to true love? That was a difficult time. I mean, the markets were in terrible shape, as you know, so it was very stressful to be the leader in a situation like that. People forget at the time that we all remember 2007 to 2009, but in 2000, 2002, the S&P went down, what, 40 45%? Yeah, calendar year basis. But I think intra-year, we were down almost 50% at different points, and, and we were getting shellac. It was a horror show. Yeah. And, you know, in situations like that, the pressure on, on the guy, you know, buck stops here kind of thing. So I ended up in a cardiac ward one afternoon. My heart basically stopped. It was an electrical malfunction, not a typical heart attack kind of thing. But I was in intensive care, and uh, it was Thanksgiving weekend, and none of our parish priests could come and see me. So a priest from actually the legionaries came up to give me last rites. I had the sacrament of confession, which as a Sunday Catholic, you know, frankly, hadn't been a confession probably in 30 years. And You, you would soon become familiar with those kinds of people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And you know, after that, I, I came out of that, and Father John said, you know, kind of what you quoted, Steve, that, you know, I've been using my gifts, which were given to me by the Lord. I mean, after all, that's he's the one who endows us with all these talents that we have. And I have a few of them, but I've been using them really for my own purposes and not for his. And I really came away from that meeting with God, if you will, with a, a real conviction that I needed to do a better job of, man, of being a steward of, of the talents and resources he'd given me. I didn't know where that was heading, Steve, but I headed out, said, I'm going to you know, pick up the phone if you call. And uh, he called me to start the Lumen Group. You know, the Lumen Group's designed to help businessmen you know, live their faith more fully in the business world as well as in their social life. So after uh, 2002... You have this, let's call it a St. Paul's moment. Yeah. 
but you didn't begin your actual on-the-corner missionary work until 2009? I started Lumen. You could call that a mission of sorts. Right. And in 2006, I went to Mexico on a mission for three years and had an actual St. Paul's moment, by the way. Went blind on the mission in Mexico once. Was able to fix that when I got back. But that's a sort of dramatic story. It's not in the book. We edited it out because we just thought the Mexico piece was just too much too much information. But <laughs> in any case, I get this phone call. One would think with the series of semi-miracles that have now occurred with this person, Steve Auth, I would have readily taken the phone call from the wife to do this mission in New York. But as I relay in the book, my answer to her is dead no, no way, no how. This will never work. I've been in New York my whole life. I know these people. They're going to put cigars out on our foreheads. Uh, Just not going to happen. With that kind of skepticism, why did you choose or why do you think you ended up evangelizing? Because one, by reputation in general culture, Catholics don't do evangelizing. Others' yeah, faiths it's not do. not our thing. But uh, Catholics, no way. Yeah. And uh, here you are, a successful businessman. Why wouldn't you open a soup kitchen or uh, finance a hospital or some scholarships for orphans or something like that? Right. You go out in the raw corner and you point out in the book, one out of 20, one out of 40, you may get a response from them. Others are going to look at you and just wander on and yeah. wonder, who is this guy? Yeah, exactly. Well, well walk us through that, well, how, how you ended up doing that and not more the conventional things one would think you would well, have done. Well, Steve, uh, how long have you been married? 47 years. Okay, so I think you know the answer to the first question. <laughs> uh, the wife wanted to do this, and so all the no's didn't matter. Three weeks later, we're on the streets of New York. What led me to keep on doing is probably the, you know, the real question here that you're asking. And um, because the first mission went poorly, but there were a few little successes. And the second year we did it, something happened, and it's related in the book, that had so many coincidences in in it that the missionaries, and this is one of the themes of the book. I mean, the, the mission is about bringing back these lost souls that are looking for a way back to the Lord. And as I like to tell people, you know, I get the math. It's a low-margin business. You just lay out the numbers. Someone did the math for me. It's like a 0.05% probability that you're going to get someone to a conversion experience. But we make it up on volume. And anyway, in the second year on the mission, the missionary, I just refer to myself as the missionary mostly in the book, as you know, but bumps into a guy who has just passed another missionary and said, you know, been there, done that, i.e. was a Catholic. We ask people, are you Catholic? That is how you begin, all the your missionaries begin the conversation, are you Catholic? Yeah, it's a very provocative question, and um, it's remarkable how well it works. I mean, a few people ask us, why did you, you know, it's none of your business, whatever, but, you know, you get people to say, God, no, I'm an atheist, and we'll say, God bless you, and they'll say, thank you. I always find that ironic. <laughs> um, we get people who say we're Jewish and Catholics all want to kill us, and by the time those conversations are over, they're either in the church praying for us or back in their synagogue. Those go very well. A Muslim, same way. We've had Muslims come into the church to say a prayer for us and vice versa. 
But Catholics will sometimes say they're Catholic, and then that'll lead to a conversation. And normally we'll ask questions. And a lot of them are struggling out there. You know, they've, they're kind of Catholic. They're like, like I was, half-baked Catholics and not really in touch with the Lord. And they haven't been to confession in a long time. They're running their own spiritual program. And as I always ask them, how's that working for you? And usually the answer isn't really not very well. And that leads to a deeper conversation. Sometimes the Catholics tell us they're not Catholic. They almost always come back within 10 to 30 minutes. It really bothers them to do that. And they say, you know, it's been bothering me ever since I said it. I am a Catholic. I apologize. And I'll say, well, now we have another sin to confess. (laughs) (laughs) This leads to one of the points you make in the book about the key characteristic of perseverance. But you learned a lot. Talk about the white-knuckle method versus the Holy Spirit approach. Walk us through that. (laughs) Well, as a type A Princeton, Harvard type, you can imagine that my preferred method is tough it out. I mean, I've been through all sorts of stuff and just grind it out, you know, another cup of coffee, keep at it. But what I found was that, you know, the most type A types could grind it through an evening that way. I mean, I certainly could. Some maybe would fall by the wayside eventually. But by the time the soul comes along that you were meant to meet that night, you're in such a bad mood from grinding it out, you're almost aggravated with them that it took them so long to get there. (laughs) Grumpy. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) And that doesn't really attract anybody. So the Holy Spirit approach is really to lean into the Lord and say, look, Lord, I'm here for you. Let this be my meditation tonight. Are you Catholic? No. Are you Catholic? No. Are you Catholic? No. Approach everyone joyfully. And I know, and this is the beauty of doing this mission enough, the missionaries become incredibly confident that their soul, if you will, that they're there for that night is coming. You know they're coming. And sometimes the missionaries, for instance, as the book starts, I mean, what's this guy doing all alone in a mist and yet this soul comes by that has an incredible issue to deal with. Or at the very end of the book, which you alluded to, uh, we won't talk about the ending too much, but you remember that scene, Steve. The missionary, again, this happens to be me, is standing on the street corner. We are already closed down. The other missionaries are in the church getting ready for Mass, and this missionary, me, is standing on the corner inexplicably, and I'm saying to myself, what am I doing here? Why am I still waiting here? But I I feel like the Lord is sending someone. And then someone arrives in very dramatic fashion that if you've been reading the book, you would see, my goodness, this was a planned moment. It's really remarkable. So you say in the book, too, faith makes you joyful, even Catholics. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the Pope's first encyclical. And I know everyone has different views about the Pope, but his first encyclical, The Joy of the Gospel, I think he had a point there. Because people This is Francis. Yeah, Pope Francis. And and you know, people think of us our brand is kind of miserable, you know, dragging ourselves through the mud, we got all these rules, confession, guilt complexes. And the reality of the faith is that we have deep confidence in our relationship with God, 
we know that he forgives us because we've just been to confession or whatever, and we know that we're going to be with him for eternity. That is actual joy. And what, what allows the missionaries, using the Holy Spirit method, to persevere and be joyful and loving everyone is they have that great confidence. And people see that. People are giving us bags of dog dung and calling us pedophiles or whatever, and we never flinch. And it really turns people's heads. And they've been pursuing this sort of secular reality. And the culture has told them, do this, do that, you'll be happy, hookups, that'll be great, whatever. And most of them are not really happy. They're actually lonely and they're in despair and problems have occurred. And they see a joyful, loving missionary on the street and they want some of that. And it really doesn't take that much to get them to stop and talk to you. And they're like, you know, they're kind of like interested. We have so many people, Steve, just remark, you know, of, of different faiths. Like it, they'll say, you know, we're not Catholic, but it's, it's really great to watch you guys out here. We didn't think Catholics did this kind of thing, you know, and you seem like you're having a great time, which we are. Seemingly the opposite, you say in the book, explain you should embrace suffering. Yeah, I think suffering is really underrated. <laughs> and not, not that you should pursue it, but the human condition is such that it's going to come to all of us sooner or later. And, you know, there's some personal health-related suffering that you can see in the book, both myself and my wife. But there's other kinds of suffering, you know, just standing on a street corner in the cold or in the snow and people ignoring you. That can be suffering. And I think in, in today's world, we think happiness is not having any suffering in my life. So we're constantly running from suffering. But unfortunately, here's the, here's the unfortunate secret. We all are going to have to deal with suffering sooner or later. It's the human condition. And if you've got a connection to the Lord, you trust in him, you know he, He's got your back. And you almost feel in some small way bonded to him. I mean, obviously, he had enormous suffering for our sake on the cross. And there's nothing, no kind of suffering we can endure that's anything like that. And But to a certain extent, you get closer to the Lord through that. And then from that usually comes some really great good that you hadn't thought about. I have a picture on my chest of me on this mission in Mexico where I, I go blind. And I haven't, I've, I've got sight in one eye. But I'm completely confident in that situation. I'm thinking, well, I'm going blind. The Lord wants me to spend my last eye reading the Bible in Spanish and giving talks to this little village in the middle of nowhere. And we get to the last village and I have a picture of myself and the other missionaries with me and this family, and they're all lined up. And I ask people, look at this picture, and one of the people in this picture has been blind for three days in his left eye. Tell me which one it is. And everyone in that picture has been chosen except the person who went blind because the joy beaming out of my face is so genuine, because it was genuine. I was in, I call that in the zone. I had embraced suffering, and I, I'm not saying I'm a saint, Steve, I'm not. I'm actually, 
as big a sinner as anyone. But in this moment, the Lord had me in his hand, and I felt it, and I was completely confident with the future. That's Christian joy. And when you can demonstrate that to people on the streets, it's extremely attractive, because that's what everyone wants, really. They just don't know how to get it. This gets to some of the obstacles that you encounter in missionary work. One, you say the obstacle of friends and family who wonder what happened to you. How, how do you deal with what you know is, you know what's going through their minds, especially in the culture today? Yeah, and the friend trying to drag them off. There's so many stories, Steve, but there's one moment in the book, and I think it's actually in that chapter, that is forever forged in my mind. In fact, I was thinking it again few weeks ago, the night that Notre Dame burned down. But I, I was, again, you know, thinking, you know, here I am alone again. Another odd coincidence. But anyway, I'm alone uh, in Little Italy under a street lamp. It's late at night. It's cold. And a group of French people come by. And I ask them, are, are any you Catholic? And they respond, no, we are not Catholic. And I say, come on. I mean, you guys are from France. You're all Catholics. And they go, no, we are not. And I said, well, well, what are you then? And I'm connecting with one guy. And I know from experience this one guy is, wants to connect with me. And he says to me, we are nothing. And as he says that, he and I are looking right at each other. And I know it's one of these lost in translation moments, but he knows English well enough to know what he just said in English. And there's this recognition and this real sadness in his eyes. And in my eyes, I'm almost in tears. And I'm thinking, I've got this guy, I got to get this guy back to church. And at that moment, while I'm focusing on his eyes, his friends literally drag him off out of the circle of light that I'm standing under into the dark and rush off. They're on their way to dinner. And from that moment on, I swore to myself and to God, I am not going to let that happen again. So now what the missionaries do is, if someone connects with us, we will insert ourselves in the mix and walk with them. So fast forward a year later, there's this young woman, Josie, same thing. They're all heading off to dinner, fashionably dressed, you know, millennial types. And she's Catholic, it turns out. We have no time for this. We've got to get to dinner. Come on, let's go. And I'm walking with her, and the more we talk, the more she's telling me about some of the things she's struggling with. And I say to her, I said, Josie, like, this is your lucky night. I mean, we've got confession going on. You could get this cleared up. Put your mind at ease. Get back in his graces. This is your chance. She can't do that. We're, we're going to dinner. Josie, what? And she said, I'm going to confession, she says. They go, well, we have a reservation. She goes, I know where the restaurant is. I'll meet you there. So I walk her back into the church. About an hour later, um, there's a mass. I come out of the mass, and she's waiting for me at the back of the church in tears. And she hugs me, and she says, Steve, thank you for being on that street corner tonight. Wow. Is it your observation Today, from uh, all the work you've done on the street corner, yes, it's New York and it's not the world, but you've come across a few people, that people are, I hate to be generalistic, but unhappy or they feel something is missing or that even though they may be doing well, they don't feel quite right. 
How, how would you describe it? Well, it's hard to generalize. I think there's plenty of people out there in the secular culture that at the moment are happy, um, but all of them sooner or later will encounter a suffering of some kind to go back to that topic. And that's when things start to unravel because they don't have an anchor to windward. Their anchor to windward is themselves. So sooner or later, they all become unhappy, and some sooner than later. Um, and so some are more willing to talk to us than others as a result. But yeah, it is my view that there's something very obviously missing from you know, a culture without God, and that's God. He's our creator. And when we cut ourselves off from him, bad things happen. Now, when you say bad things happen, and this gets to what you get on the street corners, they'll say, oh, what about the Inquisition and the religious wars and, you know, yada, yada. Yeah. <laughs> you get that thrown at you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we had a guy, a Muslim guy once, uh, He's, he yelled at me. He goes, ah, you, all, you, 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 you all want to kill us. And we got into the crusades and everything. And um, look, for better or worse, the Lord set up this supernatural institution called the church um, as a way of organizing our connection with him because he knew our failings. But unfortunately, it's implemented by human beings who have flaws, and none of us are saints. And the history of the church, is it's had its ups and downs, and it's made its mistakes. And most recently, we've had some horrific, <laughs> horrible things. But I, you have to separate that from the fundamental reality that the church is an instrument of God and that it's a way of connecting with him. So I think we need to get back to that. I think the church needs to get back to that, Um but certainly as individuals, that's that's what's really most important. And yeah, I have to be, I have to apologize for all our mistakes. I mean, uh, what can I say? But uh, I tell me a better way. How do you see the faith versus science? That's always thrown up. Some would argue th th there is no division, that uh, it's artificial. Give, give us your views on faith versus science, or as some would put it, well, Athens versus all, Jerusalem. Yeah, you know, I always tell the missionaries, don't try to argue your way through a conversation with an atheist. Um, you know, in the end of the day, they're very convicted. I, what I try to do is impress them that Catholics are not the miserable, judgmental individuals they think they are, that they were loving. And we have a lot of things in common. You know, we love others. A lot of atheists are socially responsible. Um, they care about others, etc. cetera. Um, so we have things in common. I try to stress that. I do think, uh, I'll tell you, uh, on a side, this, I'm always on mission in a way, so you could say this was an off-site mission. But I was down at Tucker's Point. Um, you know, uh, Jason Trenner, who you know, has a couple of dozen investment people once a year down there. And we were there, and the guest speaker one night was Sebastian Younger. And, you know, here's a guy with very good intent and um, has written some very powerful books and uh, he was talking about the tribe, good book. Um, and there's a lot of Christianity in that book, by the way. But he very famously, as you know, Steve declares, and he does so that night, I'm an atheist. 
And certain people in the group that know I'm very Catholic are waiting for me to challenge him. And I don't do that in front of everyone. I figure, what's the use? But he happens to be sitting next to me. So when he gets done talking, he sits down. And I said, Sebastian, I just have one question for you. Because this whole thing is we're wired to behave in certain ways. And I said, well, who wired us? Well, that's not important. Well, I think it is important who wired us. Who wrote the software. <laughs> yeah. And as we went backward in time, um, you know, we ended up saying, I said, Sebastian, in the end of the day, we can agree we're both men of faith here. You, your science explanation falls flat at some point. At some point, you've got to believe some neutron came out of nowhere and blew up and became the universe, which evolved into us. I think God created the neutron. How's that? So I believe this. We're both men of faith. And in the end of the day, that's my response to the scientists. Um, how did we get here? I look up at the dawn every morning, Steve, or the sunset every night. I see a painting pictured, you know, uh, a painting that was made by a, a great master. Some quick questions on the, on the church. Some have said the, you mentioned the pedophilia scandal that the church was just too slow to respond. Any, any thoughts on? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I'm just a, a pew Catholic, and I consider myself a kind of field general, if you will, down in the... You're, you're more than a country boy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it does seem to me, Steve, that the governance structure of the church, I think that's the big takeaway here. It it, it, I don't want to say it's medieval, but it's not consistent with modern practices. I mean, if we were running a corporation, you know, you and I are both involved in running one, uh, you know, in this kind of fashion, it would be difficult, right? You've got to have uh, independent overseers keeping an eye on things. That's a check and balance. You can understand how the church got here because spiritually— the bishops and the popes are have absolute spiritual authority derived from from Jesus, you know, and I get that. But um, in terms of temporal authority, there needs to be a better checks and balance system. And I, I think we're the, the church moves very slowly. It's frustrating to people. It's it's the only institution that survived for two thousand years. So I'm not going to second guess too much. But there is a governance overhaul coming here that I think will be very healthy for the church. Will this involve examining women priests or marriage for priests? Well, yeah, now you're really over my head theologically. <laughs> uh, you know, I, as again, I'm just a field general. I, I'm not good at these kinds of theological issues. So closing on the, on the question of, of, of culture, do you get a sense that parts of the popular culture are realizing, even if they're not really believers, they're missing a market, that uh, people, as you say from your work uh, on the corners, people are searching for something? Do you sense something might be afoot? I, I've, I think it is. Uh, I think this is the beginning, I think, in a certain way. I think Catholics and people of faith are becoming braver. I'm hoping the book... Um, is a little nudge in that direction. I don't you think there's an emerging 
awareness within the culture that there's something not working here. And, and you're hearing more and more people criticizing it. They don't quite know what's not working yet. And people are, you know, they're not apt to return immediately to the answer, the Lord, because that implies a humility that's very hard for us. Humility is not a well-accepted virtue in today's society, but... You discuss it in your book. It's the key virtue to a connection with the Lord. Um, that's one reason why I think a lot of people turn away, because it, it implies saying, hey, you know, someone's bigger than me. Um, so it's not a natural for them to go there, but I do think there's a certain restlessness, don't you, in the culture now. Do you uh, foresee uh, the day coming when we deal, say, with the opioid crisis, the way religious leaders in the early 1800s dealt with uh, the crisis of uh, alcoholism, you know, before the government got in with prohibition, they led the first public health movement in this country. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I'm not as up on all the history of that, Steve, but my guess is you are. And um, I get, what, what, what's the point? That there was a kind of spiritual solution, perhaps. This was out of control. It was having all the predictable social consequences. Yeah. One of the phrases was a uh, self-governing nation must have self-governing individuals. Yeah. And uh, I think it's true. Liquor consumption per capita has never reached the levels it did in the 1820s, 1830s. Yeah. yeah. You know, the, ind- the idea of individual accountability is something that's very, very important in the spiritual life. And um, it gets back to humility and pride and all those issues. And if that could be turned on a little louder, that might help. Steve, thank you very much. The name of the book is The Missionary of Wall Street from Managing Money to Saving Souls on the Streets of New York. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. And now, here are my reads of the week. Well, kids are going back to school, and here's an article that won't make you very happy, not because the kids will be unhappy in school, but the state of our schools. It's written by a woman who came from the Soviet Union. She's called Katya Sedgwick, and she's writing in thefederalist.com. The title is, My Childhood Schooling in the Soviet Union Was Better Than My Kids in U.S. Public Schools Today. Very sobering when she compares what she learned in the old Soviet Union versus what's being taught to her children and other children here in the good old USA. Another one discriminating against religious schools. It's written in cityjournal.org, that's city-journal.org, by Inez Felcher-Stepman, S-T-E-P-M-A-N. Thanks for listening to What's Ahead. I'm Steve Forbes, looking forward to next week. And if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this show, we at Forbes sure would appreciate it.